0: Welcome to Thinking Through Autonomy, a podcast to help you understand the promise and impact of autonomous land and air vehicles in our world. I'm Ken Dunlap, managing partner of Catalyst Go, taking you on this journey. Hear and read more at thinkingthroughautonomy.com. Now it's time to take your hands off the wheel, foot off the pedal, hand off that throttle, and let's go. We're talking today with Brooke Tapsall, She's founder and CEO of DroneAlert. It's a drone reporting app that I really believe has the potential to become a foundational tool for counter UAS, and I'm really excited to learn more about it. She's also a managing partner for Aegis. It's a drone service and consultancy provider, and she's been a scientist with the European Commission. In 2018, Brooke received the prestigious Woman to Watch in UAS Award from the Women and Drones Foundation for her work disrupting, innovating, and shaping the future of the UAS industry. She joins us from Milan, Italy. Good afternoon, Brooke. Welcome to Thinking Through Autonomy.
1: Thanks, Ken. It's great to be here.
0: We always start out with kind of an icebreaker topic, and I also call it, be careful what you post on social media because Thinking Through Autonomy might find it and ask you about it. (laughs) And we take a random fact, we talk about it. I want to talk to you today, Brooke, about Toby the Wonder Dog. He is this just incredibly adorable Australian shepherd. And I want to know, are Australian shepherds as smart as they say? And can a human ever become smarter than an Australian shepherd?
1: Very good question. And sometimes I think we we all have our moments where maybe we can outwit each other, but... <laughs> Yeah. Can we ever be smarter? I don't know. Maybe we think it. We both probably think it. But um I've I've had border collies as well back in Australia and I can def- definitely say that uh, I had a, a border collie she was extremely switched on that an example was I would draw a line on the ground anywhere uh-huh. and I would I would say no. And then she knew she just wouldn't cross it at all, and she didn't. If I would go uh, visiting and I would take her with me, I would uh, cross it uh, generally where the carpet and the tiles meet, and I would go, no, and she would never go in. It amazed everybody. Doing that with Toby, I go, no. Five years later, he still can't get it. So, <laughs> Okay. I don't know with that one. <laughs>
0: Now, does it help that you're Australian and you have an Australian accent and he's an Australian dog? Does he understand better?
1: Absolutely. I mean, (laughs) I can can really bring out my vowels, which I have to sort of uh, be careful of in Europe a little bit. Otherwise, people can't understand me. But Toby does. So this is amazing.
0: (laughs) And you take him um, with you on your Atlas field teams, don't you?
1: Absolutely. Uh, When I was actually flying, uh, going out to the field, he would come with me because he's he's an energetic dog. So being out in the field is really great. And the clients would really absolutely love having him there. So uh, we would pack everything in the car, drone and dog, go out there, fly. He would sit and watch come out with me when I'm collecting the drone and uh, keep the clients entertained in the meantime and chase uh, chase everything that's going on at the in the time. So he was a very important uh, member of the team.
0: Brooke, we have to become serious here for a little bit. You just have this incredibly amazing background and you started off as a scientist for the European Commission and now you're a CEO of a drone startup that has really this exciting potential. Can you tell us a little bit about what you did at the Commission, how you got interest in drones? Because I understand your main background is as a geospatial analyst, and uh, how you wound up at Drone Alert and Aegis.
1: So the story starts a bit more than the Commission back in Australia, where uh, my background is remote sensing, and I was working with the Queensland government with remote sensing for, for law applications, essentially. Uh, uh, we were using remote sensing for court prosecutions, which was specialized. There was about five or more of us in the state that were, were doing this. So we had someone from London come and visit us and say that what you're doing there is very specialised and they wanted to know more about what we did. So that got me thinking and I contacted the person in London and said, if you think we're so fantastic, I'd really love to see what else is going on in the world. And I arranged to come and uh, visit them. And I also asked where else can I go when I visit in Europe? And they mentioned uh, the European Commission. So this is how I arrived to uh, the European Commission in that respect. And uh, from there I was working with uh, satellite imagery Uh, for agricultural purposes and from satellite imagery it's just a natural step to go into drone imagery Uh, and this is where I started to fly Toby the Wonder Dog was coming along (laughs) and uh, from there it just became it became quite apparent that we, we needed help with, uh, with the compliance side, with the regulation side, and I think this draws a little bit more on what I was doing in, uh, in Australia with the, with the law. So that was a natural uh, avenue for me to take. And uh, the brain child, the, the thought for Drone Alert, really, really started um, around 2015, actually. I had the idea for that, and it's been progressively developed since then.
0: That's a great segue. Let's talk a little bit more about Drone Alert. And if our listeners want to follow us, uh, you can go to drone-detectives.com and see what we're talking about because it's it's really fabulous. And I also want to put a disclaimer out there. Um, I'm very enthusiastic and I'm excited by Drone Alert. And I just want to say that uh, neither Thinking Through Autonomy nor Catalyst Go has a financial interest in this. This is true enthusiasm for a wonderful technology. If I look at Drone Alert and I look at the Drone Detectives um, page, I see a map of the world, Brooke. I see drone reports that are listed on here as far south as Cape Town, as far north as the North Sea. And if you draw a circle around the world, you're hitting just about every country in between. And you have all these wonderful layers of information that can be put on top of the basic map. And I'm just wondering if you could tell us, what is Drone Alert, how does it work, and what was your inspiration for launching this?
1: So Drone Alert, is it's a rapid global reporting uh, tool for drone incidences, and it's really designed for the mobile device. So the people that are out in the field and they see the, the incidences, they can record and report while they're there, and this can provide value very valuable evidence uh, to investigations this is where i found that uh, there was a gap missing in the drone industry was that uh, when there was an incident where we're missing crucial evidence because a lot of drones come in and out in such a time that by the time the police arrived or anyone who arrived you know not for any fault of their own but it's just the delay in getting there the person is been and gone and uh, you have lost information but there's a lot of people standing around that have a mobile device either their tablet or their phone and being the social people that we are in some respect we generally take things out and record it so i just thought of how we can help the authorities to to fill those gaps in evidence by also using the power of the people and this is
0: where drone alert came out so i can understand this as a forensic tool But I'm wondering, what's the delay between the time somebody reports something on the app until the time um, that it shows up on the map, until the time that you can send an alert out to a regulator or perhaps law enforcement?
1: So this is near real time. It's as fast as the, the mobile network that you're reporting on. So as soon as you've done your report, you've gone through the verification, it will show up on the map. And it will automatically, as soon as it hits our system, our database, it gets sent out to the authorities in that jurisdiction. So as soon as it hits our system, it also hits their system, and uh, I would say it's near real-time.
0: So if uh, we go back and we look at the fiascos at Heathrow and at Gatwick, it sounds what you're telling me is that if this tool was deployed around those airports, the authorities would have had near real-time information on where those drones, if it was a drone, that's my editorial comment, were launched from, and really where to track down the um, bad operator. Is Is that a fair characterization?
1: It's a fair characterization. If, as you say, it was a drone, as we say, we don't know just yet, but if there was an incident at an airport, I mean, there's hundreds of thousands of people uh, present at an airport, and if the airport has made aware the use of a way to report to them, uh, people can report, and from many different angles. And if that is the case, the idea of how Drone Alert works is if you get enough reports, you know, even if you get two, it doesn't matter, it will help to actually create a scene and potentially a triangulation or to navigate authorities in a way that they may need to look at other avenues like um, videos, uh, closed-circuit TV, other things like this. All of that will come out, and uh, it is as fast as the people report. It is how fast it will actually get uh, on the system and sent to them.
0: What What is some of the information that's collected by the reporting system? I, I suspect there's basic things like, it was a drone, and this is where it was. But what else do you encourage people to report through this, and how flexible are you on your reporting parameters?
1: So, we make the report as uh, streamlined as we possibly can. Uh, there's only one area of a text box which we ask them to provide, like a, a witness statement. All the rest we have tried to automate with uh, drop down menus and thumbnails of images that they just press, and we ask them to share their location. So, even that is automatically just added because the whole idea is to get the information uh, quickly, but also it must be valuable information as much as possible. So, drawing on the well, the, the background that I have, uh, dealing with uh, court cases and uh, the law, this is what I'm trying to incorporate into these reports. So what we see on drone alerts, uh, if we go onto the site, that's not everything that you see uh, in the report. The report actually has a lot more
0: information. Brooke, walk me through the reporting of Drone Alert. I want to talk about not only the person who reports, but the person who receives the report. So, I'm by an airport or other critical infrastructure, and I have my phone in my hand. What do I do to physically make that report?
1: So, what we encourage you to do is just take the pictures, take the videos of everything that you can. Uh, directly and do this as soon as you've got this done our our first step that we do is we ask you to upload this so go to our website and straight away we say share your location because this is crucial uh, in also putting where you are and please say yes Uh, we're not doing it for any other purpose than to to help in the the reporting So once all the information is uploading in the background, we go through the whole reporting process of asking you to have a look at a few of the thumbnails that we have of the main drones that are the current trends of the season, or we know what's going out there. And to to click on these, um, you can change the location if you want. We ask to say how far the drone is have an estimation of how high you are, uh, give any reporting in the witness statements. Do you see the operator? Are they wearing certain X, Y, and Z? Uh, is there any TV cameras around? Any sort of information that uh, you want there?
0: So I don't have to be a drone industry insider to understand how to report this. I mean. Drone alert is for the masses, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. This is not meant to be a a complicated process because, uh, you know, I want someone to easily just go in there and to do this. We guide you through four easy steps. And as I mentioned, it's touchdown, it's intuitive, it's enough to get some initial information out there. And the authorities, if they will read that report and look at the information, like the videos or the images that have been attached, find it useful. They can then contact that person to to gain further information if they require it.
0: Give me a ballpark figure from the time I see the drone till the time I fill out everything in the app. About how long does that take?
1: It's as fast as the network that you're on. So it can really take under a minute. Uh, A lot of the testing that we did, it came out uh, in probably like 30 seconds. So... Uh, it really is dependent on your your network. We are in the country doing this. Uh, we did it on multiple devices and you go everywhere. I mean, we've got 4G around these places or we've got free Wi-Fi. So it is really quite uh, – very fast and instantaneous the only thing that may take you a bit longer if you want to is to encourage this is to write a, a bigger uh, statement because the more information it's it's better the other thing about drone alert is if uh, if you find that you're in a place that maybe has bad connection it's not it's not a problem because you can go into the system and also report retrospectively you can change the date and you can change the time Uh, because this is automatically generated. So if that's the time and the date, you press OK and you go forward. But if you find you have to go home and do it on the PC, you can do this and put in the correct information and it will automatically be sent uh, to the authorities.
0: Brooke, in one of our previous discussions, we talked about the terrible tragedy in San Francisco when the Asiana 777 crashed. And one of the things that came out of that investigation was that the crash of the aircraft was carried on social media before authorities were alerted, before it ever appeared in um, the regular media, that speaks to the power of social media. But one of the things I think we're finding, especially with Twitter feeds and the various platforms that are out there, is that social media is overwhelmed with different types of information. And if you're trying to pick out drones, UAVs, out of that social media feed, it becomes pretty tough. So isn't you know I, I look at Drone Alert and I say that kind of takes drone alerting out of the background noise of social media, and it gives enforcement authorities and regulators a tool that they can use to track that report, to to find that bad drone operator. Is that how you positioned Drone Alert as something that gets you, you know, above the background static of all the other noise out there?
1: It's a very good point, Ken, and it, it's true. Uh, this will give you focused uh, reporting. It will give you focused videos and focused imagery uh, that are directly related to a specific incident. And this will help them investigate a lot faster. Um, what we also do, though, because social media is very important and uh, I guess it, uh, it it goes up after an incident uh, progressively, is that you can also still continue to, to look on social media. Uh, we provide a, a social a social tool analysis for this just to see if you can gather any more evidence from social media. But uh, for sure, drone alert should be the first port of call because this is directly from people, eyewitnesses who have seen it. And uh, it'll be a verified process because we've also verified the people who have reported first. Social media is like a supplementary uh, way to, to gain more evidence.
0: And that that's a point well taken and an important function. We've talked a little bit now about how the reports are generated. Let's flip it to the other side, you know, the end user side, whether that's an airport, whether that's a power utility, whether it's law enforcement, whether it's a regulator. What exactly do these types of authorities receive that helps them do their job of keeping you know, the drone activity out of critical areas.
1: So what happens is the clients have their own user face. And in this, every report that's generated in their jurisdiction, they can they can view and they can manage. So within these reports, they have critical information such as the videos and the, the witness statements. They have times, they have dates, they have locations, they have potential types of drones. Uh, and from each report, ideally, uh, we hope you can build a 3D scene. And then when you have lots of reports on the one incident, you can imagine how uh, important this is to to build an overall scene of everything. And this, this is how we see it being used by the end clients. And for them, this is a way that they can use for also dealing with their, their site management if they find that the report's come in at certain times or reports come in from certain areas, there's always a breach in this area. There's always this type of drone that's coming through. It allows them to also gain, um, I guess, statistics on, on ways that can help them uh, with their management and their counter UAV.
0: It sounds like you're describing a what we would call a big data problem that can be solved by AI. Can your platform be expanded into um, analytics that are performed by AI slash machine learning? What what do you see as the future of taking all of these you know tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of reports? Absolutely,
1: the the platform is designed for this. Um, for sure, we can do statistics, and the more reports we have, uh, I guess the more robust statistics that will be developed, and this will lead into a global picture of uh, where the gaps are, where our weaknesses are, and that will obviously help then improving where we can and to help with the the overall drone management drone security so this is this is quite important the ai behind we are developing ai behind all this already uh with um, image recognition so when the reports come in and the videos come in and the images come in we are testing the theory of can we actually identify the drones from there and what type of drones so this is all uh, happening in the side so for sure The platform is designed to be expandable uh, with AI and the statistical uh, model behind it to be able to give a global perspective and screenshot, which should help. And we hope one day it can contribute to drone management security.
0: In looking at the uh, drone alert website, one of the things that I've used on um, your demo here are various layers that you can put on on top of these reports. Um, we see NOTAMs, we see no-fly zones, we see drone racing zones. As, as you kind of look at the future, or, or maybe speak to your clients now, what other kind of layers are useful to overlay the drone reports?
1: I think what we have up at the moment are probably the most crucial ones that are available the no-fly zones we extracted globally through artificial intelligence actually and um, we have the drone racing up there because what I'm also trying to to show are very clearly the areas that are safe to fly or zones which are safe to fly and this is something that uh, I'd also like to put up there actually green you know you can fly there and it is absolutely without any doubt that you can fly there because this is still quite unknown what we would like to put on maybe is uh, the flight trackers but i think notums are very important Uh, the no-fly zones are very important any temporary uh, zones of no flight these are also quite important to to come up and each one of these is linked to the countries drone Laws, which I think is also very important because a lot of people want to know I can't fly there Why and where can I look to understand where I can fly if I go to these countries?
0: Brooke, we're gonna talk a little bit more about drone alert through the rest of this podcast But I just want to remind people go to drone-detectives.com and you can see what Brooke and I were just discussing Brooke, you're a drone operator in Europe and I think one of the, the big global discussions right now, as you well know, is who's doing drone regulation smarter? Europe, the United States, Japan, fill in the name of another country in between. Can you talk to us a little bit about this incredible web of regulatory authorities that are out there, starting with EASA, the European Union Aviation Safety Industry, and then there's the JARUS mixed into this, which I know many listeners are familiar with then we've got the commission, we've got the parliament. What does drone regulation in Europe, that process, look like?
1: So as, as you see, there's many players, and uh, these are just the, the European uh, players, but also within each country, they have their own uh, regulations. And uh, it's it's a melting pot. It's confusing, Um but what is happening is with Yasa and the Commission, they're trying to work towards standardizing and harmonizing the, the regulations across Europe. And this is a very progressive way forward. And uh, I just posted on my LinkedIn uh, one of the, the latest releases from Yasa. So we're, we're slowly getting there across the regulations in each country you probably find there's a lot of similarities between them in some respects, amount of time or amount of distance from airports, flying heights, all these sort of things. So there are uh, commonalities between the regulations uh, and also globally you see these commonalities coming out. So who does what better? I'm not going to say anyone does anything better because every country and every uh, organisation who needs to control these are doing the best that they can, and it's going to be a process which is constantly evolving. Uh, we have to keep up with uh, the technology that's always evolving to make sure that the regulations are always relevant, and to also ensure that uh, you know we we have the right level of control without over controlling, and it allows you know the people who just want to fly for fun to also fly for fun, but uh, safely. So it's it's an interesting scene in Europe, but it's it's getting better year by year.
0: Well, one of the things you just mentioned was the March 12th action by the European Commission that essentially approved different categories for UAS operations, which include things like open operations, specific operations, and certified operations. But I think to me, most importantly, I saw that there's this risk and performance framework that's put in place, and then developing scenarios for regulation, which essentially the operator says, well, this scenario matches my operation. This is the scenario I'm going to fly under. And then they're presented with the regulations. I'm pretty high on what I just saw from Europe. What I'm wondering is, do you think that the individual member states have the same degree of enthusiasm as this guy across the Atlantic? Or is it like many things European, where it's an iterative process, and this might be the lowest common denominator?
1: No, I think a lot of um, the European countries really do want to get a handle on on the drone regulations. So yeah, they're probably excited just like you because drones are causing quite quite an issue quite a stir and and definitely after um, the the problems that we had in the UK airports recently it certainly put a match uh, where it needs to to light the fire and it's it's really good timing so I think there is enthusiasm and everybody wants to find a common goal um, which is sustainable and I think we're in that right direction so we're all pretty pretty happy and excited with the the growth that's going on here in the direction that it is
0: well globally you know we have this phenomenon which knows no border and that's the ignorant drone operator doing things like flying around heathrow flying around gatwick can you think of any other incidents within europe that have captured attention outside of gatwick and heathrow are they going after power plants are they going after trains or is it just the airports that have this hyper-sensitive view that drones shouldn't be around them? What's driving the regulatory discussion?
1: I mean, in the media, you see, you have to sort of maybe go to country specific, but uh, see that they're flying around in other places. Uh, In France, a few years ago, there was drones flying around the power plants, which caused uh, quite an issue, Uh, around the prisons. There's also a lot flying around the world and uh, you have over maybe high security areas like palaces and other things like that. So where you're wondering what they're doing with the drone, um, there are incidences like this happening in other airports around Europe. There's there's drones flying in in these areas as well. So all of this and potentially just the inability to really control it and to, to get on top of it is is really a driving force to to make sure we have the right regulations to be able to deal with it as much as we possibly can, uh, with the the categories um, as you've mentioned before to make sure we cover the range of drones that we have, in the weights that we have, in the the commercial, in the recreational, because each of these are separated in Europe as well. So it's, it's a minefield, really.
0: Brooke, let's talk a little bit about UAS operations in Europe. What are we typically seeing that customers are asking for?
1: So there's lots of applications for... For drones in Europe, and I guess you can also expand this to the world, uh, agriculture is a big one here in Europe. Uh, it's been also deployed in emergency services uh, for surveys. We've got infrastructure of oil of gas, wind farms, humanitarian purposes, film and TV. The police are bringing them into their teams essentially now. Uh, waste management is becoming quite a topic for, for drone use at the moment.
0: Really? I've not yeah, heard that one.
1: Yeah, they're using it to, to try and find uh, where all the waste is, you know, because you've got to go up higher to see that it's hidden over in the corner of a field somewhere. So uh, they're using it a bit for waste management, uh, illegal dumping and spotting these. Interesting. Yeah, and you've got your typical real estate and weddings and all this sort of stuff. Um, postal services are also have been testing the use of delivery into remote areas of uh, the post by drones. So there's there's lots of uh, there's lots of applications.
0: And I would be remiss if we didn't talk about package delivery, like the Amazons of the world uh, or UPS that <laughs> want to do this. Give me a number between zero and ten of when you think the first commercial delivery of a package will be. I mean, a real delivery, not just some test somewhere.
1: Not just an ice cream being delivered from the beach. No, 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 no.
0: (laughs) want I want my whole bean burrito delivered right now and every Friday.
1: Yeah, I think we've got to wait a little bit uh, for that one because we have to get uh, the UTM up and going. So, yeah, I would put that uh, as a 10 if that's uh, the the longest wait that we have. Um, I think we've got a little bit of time to go in that
0: one. You could add 10 plus on that. Uh, Ten plus. Yeah, I have to say, <laughs> I have to say we, we may differ a little bit because I think it'll be here a little bit sooner than that.
1: I'm a bit too pessimistic. I would give <laughs> I would give it at least a
0: strong four plus.
1: Oh really? Wow. But I'm not
0: betting on that. <laughs> okay. So let let's kind of go back to where we started, um, talking about drone alert and talking about the bigger topic of counter UAS. Hot topic on this side of the Atlantic, we have people selling literally directed energy weapons to take down drones, jammers, blinding systems, you name it. And I'm just kind of wondering, is there a general European consensus on what can be done or maybe what shouldn't be done? And where is this all falling in the broader discussion of UTM?
1: You know, you mentioned a few of the technological devices that we have for counter UAV, but uh, the counter UAV technology is still developing and will constantly be developing. It's, It's something where you still kind of have to be there. If you've got one of these jamming guns, I mean, they bring them out to the World Economic Forum. You have to be there, point this massive thing at, at the at the drone to take it out. And if you're not there, well, what are you going to do? So for this, I think uh, the technology is still developing and it, it will take it'll take a bit more time, but we're getting there. We've got a few options out, out there that are all testing. I mean, even using eagles and nets. And it's all been uh, going through the testing phases for, for counter UAV.
0: Brooke, let's talk a little bit more. You just used the word UTM and the relation between UTM and counter-UAS. And and I'm going to flavor this podcast by putting a position forward. And I think my basic position is, is that UTM should be used for cooperating traffic. So if you are a UAS system that wants to be part of the airspace and have privileges in the airspace, UTM needs to be a requirement for you. But I don't think that there should be any expectation that non-cooperative traffic needs to be tracked that way, that there needs to be other tools to use, because UTM is not going to be something that is going to solve every problem for every unidentified drone. Did I hit that right? Or is, uh, is there something else to consider?
1: No, it sounds all right. Because, I mean, UTM, as you said, it's controlling the skies. And I guess the thing that I'll bring on that maybe can link to the counter UAV is the geofencing. Essentially, in a way, um, this is being tested and done by some of the manufacturers of a way to to control uh, the drones. And uh, I guess a counter UAV method to keep it out of a zone is to geofence it, to stop it from going in there. That would be a link uh, a link for me but like with anything uh, in any sort of technology you've always got those bright sparks out there it could be uh, an Australian shepherd behind the, the keyboard, you never know that hack into these systems and uh, allow drones to go anywhere
0: yeah and I think so, the basic the basic issue wouldn't you agree with geofencing and with UTM is that these are systems that are pretty easy to circumvent And if you're a bad drone operator and you have um, bad intent, turning that stuff off is pretty easy. And it doesn't seem to make sense that you need to build a whole UTM system to find those one or two operators who are trying to circumvent you anyways. And and I would just add, you're going to have autonomous systems that are going to be able to evade any kind of signals collection system that you put out there. So it's kind of too late to talk about that. But that's my soapbox.
1: No, no, it, it's true. You will always have someone um, that will get through this. And I mean, this is probably getting into the darker side of, of drones with um, maybe terrorism or doing it for smuggling purposes or something like that. When there's a will, there's a way. And even if that way is potentially blocked once, it will, they will find another way. Uh, and you just have to, to keep, uh, keep blocking it. But it's hard to actually stop it. Forever or forcefully because, you know, what if you've got someone that's built a drone from everything uh, taken off the net? Uh, it's it's not actually one of the mainstream manufacturers. So a lot of this information or the, the geofencing built into the manufacturers is not there. So there's a will, there's a way. But the thing is, you know, if you've got these aspects, you've still got me being the person maybe illegally flying. Um, and there's someone standing next to me or there's a couple of people standing next to me. And this is where the power of actually using people to gain evidence and to provide that will always have um, relevance because you can't hack that. (laughs) people uh you know if they're feeling that something's wrong or there's there's an issue with it they will report it and they will they will want to do something with that information and this is where i guess drone alert comes in with the counter uav as a way that circumnavigates also the hacking and the technology because you're using people the power of the people to get that information and uh, maybe you can bribe or hack that but uh, you still get uh, the majority of people doing uh, hopefully the right thing in reporting
0: well, I think what we need to do is take this concept called crowdsource detection and tracking and copyright it uh, because, because <laughs> actually, I don't want to take your business from you, but I, you know, I, I,
1: I and it's all right.
0: <laughs> oh, okay. So I can't do it. Yes. Um, I just think that the power of what I've seen at drone alert is actually bringing crowdsourcing to detection and tracking. That, I think, is a power that will stop the truly autonomous vehicles as these vehicles start appearing, and it's going to stop the rogue operators in their tracks. I mean, can you think if maybe uh, an airport like Gatwick decided that they were going to have a bounty program, and let's just say for the the sake of um, talking, that they told everybody around the airport to have drone alert on their phones, and if there was someone that reported it and that person was prosecuted, you'd go get a bounty and reward for that. Um, do you envision Drone Alert as, as being a bounty tool? What do you think would make someone want to pick up Drone Alert, install the app on the phone, and actually put reports on?
1: Absolutely. I agree with you there, Ken. We want to make sure that people get a reward, or they feel that uh, there is use coming out of this. So, yeah, bounty—you know, bounty hunter, drone detective—some uh, sort of some sort of reward to to show that what they've done is valuable and has had impact. What I've heard um, a bit around with uh, other operators and people—they said they've they've put in a report or they've done this through the normal avenues. And they just go, it's a black box. You never see anything again. You never hear from it again. You don't know why it's done anything. And you go, well, why should I report? We don't want that attitude. We want people to feel that they they are providing something very valuable. So giving them a reward for this is very important to us. And it's something we want to work with um, the airports, or the clients with, to, to provide this.
0: And don't you think it would be cheaper for the airports to... Deploy a system like Drone Alert than to put these death rate killer beams that they're spending millions of pounds on on top of their airport. It, it seems to me bounties cost far less.
1: They do, but it may not look so cool.
0: <laughs> oh my, oh my. We'll, but, we'll save that discussion for a future <laughs> podcast. I just want to maybe turn the discussion around a little bit for the last few moments that we have here um, to talk a little bit about BV loss. You know, in a country like the United States, you you essentially could fly a drone from one end of the country to the other and only have to deal with the FAA for the most part. Um, On the other hand, I could pretty easily take a drone between Switzerland and France on a hourly basis and cause two regulators problems. Where does the BVS discussion stand right now in Europe, especially knowing that there might be commercial purposes where these drones need to go from one nation's airspace into another.
1: Yeah, I mean, around the world, speed loss is topical, no matter where you are, uh, because it is a risk. I mean, you don't see the drone, <laughs> and that's a problem. But I think like other countries around the world, they're slowly giving uh, companies the authority to fly once they've gone through the correct procedures and processes. Processes. indeed we've got to the issue of uh, multiple regulators and you know if you fly the distance of america over europe you're, you're covering many many different countries and different air spaces. so again this is something you have to deal with in europe it's just so many different regulatory bodies that uh, you know a topic like this can take a while to to resolve but as far as i understand uh, that uh, they, they're getting there
0: Brooke, one of the things that I know you're incredibly passionate about is getting more women and girls involved in this industry, because frankly, there aren't enough. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've been doing and the great initiatives that you've been part of over the last 18 months?
1: Absolutely. Um, As you mentioned earlier in the introduction, I was given the honor of the uh, Women to Watch in 2018, and this was amazing to also meet other Ladies in the industry like this, what a uh, what I have is a passion that to bring women into the drone industry because you know we sort of stand a, a bit alone. There's not so many of us. So when I see younger younger ladies who are interested in entrepreneurship or interested in picking up a drone, uh, I try and offer my help with mentoring, uh, giving advice, something like this, and definitely encouragement uh, to to help them really. Not be afraid of entering into this field.
0: What do you think is the key thing that needs to be done? Is it companies opening up greater diversity within their workforces and really stepping up on that? And it's a problem.
1: It is a problem. And... I think they're starting to attack and maybe have been refused the the issue to really help with that. So a lot of companies do try and hire uh, the ladies if they're appropriately skilled. But also in Europe, there's a lot of funding and initiatives uh, that help female entrepreneurs, uh, innovation uh, hubs, uh, female um, business leader groups. There's a, there's a lot of different support networks and avenues out there to to help the ladies. Um, and I've I've uh, been able to join these. They have particular pitching startups as well for for the ladies. So you, you have to sort of search for it to find it. Uh, but they're out there. And also um, the European Commission is really uh, supporting female entrepreneurs and innovation. So the, you just have to sort of get on the internet for a little bit and, and search for it and get connected with all these ladies that you see uh, on the internet or doing uh, interviews, etc., like this, and just sort of help each other. And that also provides an avenue of people that they know where you are in this that uh, they send people to you for help so i've had um some some male colleagues who have had young lady entrepreneurs come to them and they've actually sent them to me uh to to provide some mentoring so it's it's just extending your network out there as well
0: what's your favorite story or biggest surprise in doing this
1: I guess it's just uh, finding the ladies, which has been the, uh, the, biggest, the biggest issue. And, you know, just to not feel intimidated if you do find yourself in a situation where you are the only lady in, uh, in a meeting or at presentations or anything like this. Uh, you do find that everybody in the industry, uh, male or female, they, they are supportive of you. I, I don't find that, um, you know, the male colleagues are not supportive at all. It's it's just that there's not many of the ladies <laughs>
0: out there. You relayed to me a story where you were at a booth with one of your um, sales managers and someone walked up to the manager who was a male and assumed that was the CEO. Do you yes. find that often where <laughs> people won't accept the fact that you're a female CEO in the drone industry?
1: I think it's a bit interesting uh, to begin with. And- you sort of, I find that you need to sort of prove yourself a little bit in conversations to begin with, because yes, uh, when you're at the booth in that respect, uh, they they just think you're the the sales girl, the sales girl, and they just think you're one of those. So it was uh, my CTO who was approached and uh, the person said, you know, this is your idea. And he was very lovely, said no. Um, She's a CEO and it was her idea. And, you know, the person just went, oh, I had um, email correspondence with people. And then I said, let's let's have a, a call. And we, we have a call, and I say, hi, you know, this is Brooke Tapsell. And I actually had someone just say, oh, my God, you're, you're a woman. And I went, yes, I thought you were a man. Just by the the name. I don't know why. I think Brooke is a female name. But uh, they just all seem to assume that um, you're going to be a male in this. So you do sort of have to maybe do a little bit of uh, foundation work, but – you, you do get the support apart from that, uh, and it, it's changing in the culture as well. Um, most of my career has been spent in a male-dominated industry, so I'm kind of uh, used to sort of sticking the elbows out and making myself a bit more uh, heard, if I can say that. So you do get some funny stories, and you do maybe have to put your hand up a little bit more, but uh, the culture's changing, and you know you do get a lot of support through funding, through networks, and through from your male
0: colleagues. Let me ask you this. If your daughter, your sister, your friend comes to you and she says, I'm really interested about drones, what's your advice that you give to these young girls and these women?
1: Yeah, I mean, if you've got the passion, so follow your passion. Follow, follow your heart with these things and just keep going, um, don't feel don't feel overwhelmed by things you may encounter, people you may encounter, and don't feel intimidated. Uh, this is probably the main thing I would say because it is a little intimidating. Uh, one time I walked into a boardroom and I counted 13, 14 men and two ladies. It was myself and the other one was the secretary who was there taking the notes. Don't feel intimidated by this. You can you can have a stand and potentially this gives you, you know, maybe more power. So always feel uh, empowered uh, and go forward with, with what you're doing. And then a lot of these women, you know, even though they're younger, they're, they're full of energy. Even I feel inspired by, by them and how they're courageous in this. So uh, I would definitely just say go for it and put your heart behind it.
0: Brooke, those are incredibly powerful words, and I want to congratulate you on your award from the Women in Drones Foundation, and I certainly want to thank you for joining us on Thinking Through Autonomy. It's been a great pleasure. You're always welcome back, and uh, good luck with Drone Alert. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you very much, Ken.